Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Mikla Benson and today I'm joined by Dr Megan Benton. Megan is a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. She's also working with us on the project with kind of elite interviewees, um, people who work for the European Union, for other European Union member states, and she'll be feeding that back into the project for us. So what I wanted to do today, though, was to talk to Megan a little bit about the new report that she's authored for the Barry Cadbury Foundation. The report's entitled Safe or Sorry? prospects for Britons abroad after Brexit, which of course is highly topical to the project. So I thought perhaps we could start, Megan, by you just describing a little bit what you're trying to do in that report. Sure. Um, nice to talk to you too. Um, well, the motivation for this research was really that we felt that the issue of UK nationals in the EU after Brexit was being treated as a kind of second order issue. And I guess we hatched the idea sometime at the end end of last year, uh, which was probably around the time that you also started thinking that it was a bit of an under-researched area. Um, and I think what's interesting is that in the last six months, it has become so much more prominent as an issue. It's clearly a big part of the debate, it's been a big part of the negotiations, which is partly, I think, testament to the sort of very active nature of some of the interest groups who've been really working hard in this area. So, so we're feeling a little bit more positive about that. But what we wanted to do with the paper was look behind the headlines and behind the sort of um, discussions about progress on deal and look at actually what the prospects are for the UK population. So what do we know about them? Um, what are their characteristics? What's their likelihood to be able to stay in the country based on various other attributes, such as the length of time they've been in the country? And then think about some of the sort of tricky implications um, that might emerge, I think, regardless of whether there's a deal or not, on issues such as agreeing status, um, access to healthcare, access to the labour market. Um, so, yeah, that was really the goal with this with this particular paper and with the research in general. So, really, it's this idea of shifting the conversation beyond the headlines. Um, and that's partly to do with shifting the conversation about who the British abroad are um, and highlighting the diversity of the population, as well as shifting the discussion away from the discussion of legal status. That's, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, as you yourself have said, there's there's been... A lot of focus on retirees as if they're, you know, the extent of the UK population. And, and really what we found is they're extremely diverse. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it was also that I think one interesting thing about the way that the negotiations on citizens' rights have been framed is as if the status of EU nationals in the UK and UK nationals elsewhere in the EU are totally symmetrical and reciprocal and can be addressed as if they're the same issue, which they're really not. I mean, if the UK walks away without a deal, it can still do anything it wants to secure the status of EU nationals in the UK. It can't do anything about Brits abroad. And that's the fundamental asymmetry. That's why we really felt that this was a vulnerable population um, that deserved more thought and not just to be framed as if it's, you know, part of the same package. So currently, um, UK nationals are covered by EU law as EU citizens. Um, and if the UK left the European Union without a deal on citizens' rights and they defaulted to being treated as third country nationals, which means... Um, people from outside the EU, migrants from outside the EU, 
they are still protected by some EU law. For instance, there's a, a residency directive, which um, in, means that anyone who has lived um, legally in um, European countries who are signatories to this directive for five years are entitled to permanent residence. So that means that people who've been in the country of residence for five years uh, will be, you know, de facto better protected. There are some <laughs> tricky intricacies around this. I just wanted to make the point that there is this kind of minimal um, EU legal framework, even if the worst possible scenario happens, which is that the UK walks away without a deal. Okay, that's really great. I wondered if we could backtrack a little bit. One of the questions that we often get asked um, on this project is about the number of Britons living in the EU27. And I know that's something that you tried to do a little bit of work on in the report. So I wondered if you could explain a little bit about where we are in terms of our knowledge and understanding of the numbers of those populations. Sure. Um, so the figure that's often cited on this is that there's 1.2 million Brits who are living in the EU on a permanent basis. The largest numbers, as I'm sure most people know very well, are in are in Spain and Ireland and France and Germany. Those countries all have a population of over 100,000. And Spain, of course, is the outlier with over 300,000. But the thing to note is that we don't have very reliable data on the UK population living in the EU. The first problem is that you have to choose between whether you want to look at foreign-born or foreign nationals. And we usually look at foreign-born, so we look at who's UK-born, but that means that we're also capturing people who've become citizens of the country that they live in or hold dual citizenship. So they might not be the people that we would necessarily worry about um, in relation to Brexit and their continued right to live in the countries they live. So the perennial the, problem with numbers is precisely because there is no real agreement on how you might even start to identify who counts as British abroad within those types of statistics? That's one of the problems. There is an even greater problem, which is that most um, national data sets will only collect data on permanent residents and people who have registered, usually with the local municipality. And one of the things that we know about the, the UK population, and indeed the the mobile EU population is that they not they don't always have to register in particular countries. Um, they don't always have a very good incentive to register or really understand that they should register. And we have no idea really what the extent of under-registration is. So all these people who are just not counted by any um, any of the official figures. So it's quite possible that the population is larger than the official estimates suggest. So, so that ambiguity doesn't really help us very much, does it, in getting to the bottom of, of the question of how many British people live in the EU27. But what could you tell us about the kind of the makeup of that, of that population? Um, yeah, well, I mentioned earlier that we tend to fixate a little bit on pensioners. Um, so we did do some, we, we looked into whether we could get data on exactly how many pensioners there were. Um, again, you know, the data is a bit limited here, so you tend to have to focus on age as a proxy. But if you look at the over 65s, um, there are quite large numbers. There's about 120,000 in Spain, uh, 30,000 in France, 18,000 in Ireland, which is obviously a smaller country, so that's kind of bigger portion. But the UK population in the EU is a really diverse group, as you yourself mentioned earlier. 
So, for instance, there are more students who are studying in France or Spain than there are in the US, which I was quite surprised to find. Yeah, that um, was a also, really surprising um, figure for me as well when I was looking <laughs> through the report, that number yeah. of students. I mean, it's a small number if you think about the UK population as a whole. So in France, for instance, it's just under 4,000 per year, though. I mean, that's registered in one academic year. Um, so it's, it's a small population, but it's a really important population, ones we shouldn't forget about. There's also a lot of professionals. So I've been moaning a lot about the lack of data, but one really beautiful data source that we have uh, as researchers is this thing called the European Regulated Professions Database, which I know sounds really, um, like not everyone would be excited about that. But, uh, so what's ex- <laughs> tell, us, tell us what's exciting about that then. <laughs> sure. Well, what that means is that if someone wants to do a job elsewhere in the European Union that is regulated, and that means that um, it's a, a type of profession that requires a very stringent set of qualifications. And these are jobs like architects or teachers or lawyers, um, doctors, yeah. lawyers, exactly. Yeah. This database is based, based on a directive uh, which gives people who have these types of jobs the right to have their qualifications recognised in any other European country. So if they've studied in a different education system, it means that you can practice those kinds of professions elsewhere in the EU. And what's really exciting about it is that you can see how many Brits applied to be nurses or doctors or the rest of it elsewhere in the European Union. And what the data says is that um, 36,000 UK nationals have had their qualifications recognised so they could move elsewhere in the EU. And that's between 97 and 2016. That actually makes the UK the fifth most mobile country when it comes to professional mobility after Germany, Poland, Spain and Romania. We don't often think of the UK as this kind of professionally mobile population, but the data does suggest that, you know, it's really up there. And the most popular jobs were teachers and nurses. The other side of this kind of wanting to shift the conversation from the headlines is that, as as you highlight really, really clearly in the report, a lot of the focus in the negotiations is, of course, going to be on legal status. In fact, it has been up until now. But this is actually only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the impact that Brexit might have on these populations, whether there's a deal or no deal. So I wondered if you wanted to talk about some of the different mechanisms that you think we might need to turn our attention to when we're considering those British populations abroad. Um, Sure. Well, I think there's two important points in that question. One is that in all this um, focus on legal status, we're not considering as a sort of first order issue um, some of those issues about access to benefits, um, access to the labour market, those entitlements to have your foreign qualifications recognised elsewhere um, has really, like, I think the UK government has been very clear that that's a for later kind of topic. So it's really not been part of the debate. Um, There's also issues around people's rights to bring in their non-EU family members, which are really important. But the second point to make is that I think that regardless of whether there is a deal, there is still likely to be large swathes of people who find themselves in some kind of limbo status or even a kind of de facto unauthorised status, if you want to use that language. Um, You know, we're focusing all the time on a deal, but whether or not there's a deal or no deal, you still find that the kinds of people who are vulnerable are people who move back and forth on a sort of seasonal basis and haven't registered, as we discussed earlier. It's people who've been um, economically inactive, meaning they haven't participated in the labour market, and they might be 
retirees or students because they've they've been subject to greater restrictions and since they didn't know that they were going to have to at some point prove that they had been continually legally resident um, there might be some mm. trouble there. I mean that would also include people who've taken parental leave for some reason or stayed at you know stayed at home to look after a dependent whether that's an elderly relative or um, or a young child I suppose. Yeah absolutely it actually includes a lot of people I mean even uh, not to be a bit self-serving, but even academics and experts who took a sabbatical, you know, might find themselves classed as economically inactive for that particular time. Or people who were, fail- you know, didn't make a minimum wage um, or had a wage that was below the level of social assistance, which is what most European countries use as the kind of standard for um, working out whether people were self-sufficient or not, which is a requirement according yeah. to EU law of your right to reside. Do you want to talk a little bit more about access to the labour market and how that might be affected by Brexit? Because I think that you had some kind of ideas about the unintended consequences that Brexit might present. Yeah, well, I mentioned um, a few of the direct consequences, which is things like not being able to get your qualifications recognised. Now, that will affect people in regulated professions much more than people who are just working in other types of jobs. Um, But there's also, in some countries, certain occupations which are restricted to EU nationals or nationals of that particular country. Um, So that would have um, an effect on UK nationals in the labour market. The one point that I tried to make in the paper is that we think quite a lot in these discussions about the, the direct, obvious impacts of labour market access and exactly what jobs... UK nationals might not be able to get anymore. But I think it's much more likely that the indirect effects are going to be um, much more um, significant. So I think the British nationals could face more discrimination and, and anything from hiring to promotion. And employers might just, they might, they might be so um, unclear about what the legal situation is that they just kind of avoid hiring British nationals. I mean, of course, we've already started to see some suggestions that that might be happening in the UK with um, EU nationals. So so I could see how, how that might also be mirrored elsewhere. Yeah, and I think the, the extra thing that's happening elsewhere is that there's a bit of anger towards the UK and it's almost um, uh, not very cool to be at all British. So some firms might be trying to kind of downplay their, the, the role that UK nationals play um, yeah. as employees. So if you had to quickly summarise um, what you think the prospects are for Britons living in the EU 27 going forwards, um, and what, what, what would you say? I think there's going to be a huge polarisation between people who are able to fulfil whatever requirements are agreed um, by the deal, assuming there is one, um, and those who find themselves on the wrong side of a particular threshold, who are in a sort of persistent protracted period of of legal limbo and uncertainty. Uh, I tried to refer to these as the Brex haves and the Brex have nots, but that was my attempt at... uh, (laughs) It's quite catchy. (laughs) Twitter soundbite. But I really do think this is a really important issue that the idea of citizens' rights, it's not not a monolithic population that is all going to be okay if a deal goes through. We're facing um, just a host of unintended consequences and people who find themselves in, these, in, in, in this sort of proliferation of complicated legal status 
where there won't be a very easy answer. And of course, it's likely to be lawyers who benefit from this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, where we're at is that we have to we are going to have to wait and see a little bit but we can already anticipate that for those most vulnerable groups um, among those British populations abroad which include those people who maybe won't be meeting those minimum thresholds for income all of those types of things a diverse population that there are going to be some consequences uh, whatever the deal is that's reached if one is reached um, or not. Absolutely. And I think that among those extremely vulnerable, there are going to be some groups who actually find themselves without the right to move back to the UK. So we haven't been talking very much about the question of returns. So people who are going to choose to move back to the UK. But the the people who, for instance, live in a country where uh, if if you have a UK national who's married to a non-EU national, currently has the same rights um, as a mobile EU national under EU law they will find themselves in an extremely vulnerable population because even if the UK national would get the right to stay in the EU, their family member might not because of um, income thresholds, for instance, or other restrictions that countries pose, age restrictions even in some countries. And then if they couldn't then move back to the UK because the UK also imposes an income requirement of £18,600, I think, um, they're just going to be stuck kind of in... Well, extreme limbo and those are sort of the really vulnerable um, mm. groups and families yeah these are these are people whose partners would not then necessarily have the right to join them in the uk is is what you're talking about as well so they could find themselves on a very tricky ground well that's that's been great megan thank you very much for joining us from barcelona airport um that explains some of the blips in the recording for anyone who's who's wondering um and thank you very much um for taking the time out of your day to talk to us today It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for having me on. No problem at all. Thank you for listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today and want to find out more, check out our website, www.brexitbritsabroad.com or you can follow us on social media via Twitter, at BrexPatsEU and on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And I'll speak to you again soon.